Welcome to Health Impact's Digital Health Talks, produced by Purpose Events, hosted by the Health Impact Live team, Megan Antonelli, Emily Raish, and Shahid Shah, Health Impact Chair and CEO and Publisher of Medigy. Each week, we bring you stories from the healthcare providers and technology leaders focused on fixing America's healthcare system. They'll discuss how their organizations are using technology to improve access, equity, and quality. For more than 10 years, we have been your no BS resource for the digital health tools that matter to patients and providers. Join us every Tuesday to learn how programs in telehealth, data analytics, cloud, 5G, artificial intelligence, and machine learning are improving patient experience and health outcomes across the globe. I'm here today with Dr. Daniel Duran. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dan, and congrats on your new role. Uh, formerly Chief Innovation Officer, uh, Dan recently took a new role as Chief Clinical Officer at LifeBridge Health. Uh, LifeBridge Health serves nearly 1.5 million patients, so needless to say, Chief Clinical Officer is going to be a big job. When we at Health Impact heard you're taking on this new and exciting role, we thought it'd be a great opportunity to talk to you a little bit about what it means to go from, as you said, an innovator to an operator. So I just want to kind of start off uh, and follow this thread of your career through LifeBridge because you've been there for some time. So as, as radiology chief at LifeBridge, you've been operating and innovating in the clinical realm for some time already. So Dan, if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about your new leadership role and what it means for LifeBridge and kind of what it means for you. And how sure. are you going to approach your new role differently based on your experience as chief innovation officer? Absolutely. And thanks, Emily. It's always great to be here. And it's an excellent question. Um, so I'll try to weave, weave the thread together from radiology to innovation and now more broadly to chief clinical officer over these past uh, five or six years. Um, the radiology role is within my own discipline. And that was an opportunity to um, consolidate a group of different hospitals that had somewhat fragmented clinical services, bring them onto one platform, um, eventually build a, a faculty, which we're still uh, in the process of expanding. And then really um, put them on an innovation, or I should say us, put us on an innovation uh, clinical and IT path, weaving really those two things together um, to, to bring us to the next generation of interpretive services for radiology. And so what that means, uh, a lot of that has been radiologist workflow, you know, getting uh, of, um, scale by combining all those different locations so that uh, more and more every specialist trained radiologist that we bring into the practice is able to have a very tight scope of practice and able to see exactly the type of cases that they are well prepared to see in their wheelhouse. And what we find is that this makes them both more efficient as well as sort of happier in their job um, and, and higher quality. Mm -hmm. So that's a five-year journey. And it, it's analogous to a lot of what we're trying to do more broadly throughout medicine. I like to think of radiology as one of the first truly digital specialties. Everybody's talking about virtual now. Radiology was virtual even when I trained largely. Now, mm -hmm. from the PAX era forward, you could be anywhere reading the images. And most of us were in the hospital that the image was taken at. But now more and more, you can be anywhere uh, and, and read these images as long as the IT systems bring the important information to you. And as long as you have that important closed loop to bring back to the point of care, 
hey, we need to change this about the protocol, or I need this extra information, or this patient needs this extra test or extra scan. So closing the loop is, is always important. But, but the exercise of doing that for radiology and then doing it at scale across many hundreds of thousands and really millions of exams that have taken place uh, in the department under my tenure, uh, you know, it was good training. And I think that the system saw some of that going on in radiology, saw us using some of these tools like NLP and AI and using them effectively. And that was one of the reasons that three years ago, they brought me into the enterprise role as chief innovation officer. Mm. Chief innovation officer, you know, I'd say like, you know, there are operational components to it, but it's really a cultural role in, in a way. I mean, you're there as a facilitator and as a catalyst because um, the worst way to approach innovation is to think of the chief innovation officer and his staff as driving all innovations. In fact, they're supposed to be helping all of the operators and the service line heads, right? Helping those, those business owners understand what, what the future holds, be informed of trends that are cutting across industries, things like AI or robotics, internet of things, those broad categories, blockchain, for example. And then helping them think through the the, 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 the day and where they'd like to go and, and how to innovate, how to do that kind of change management along that particular, usually tech-enabled type strategy. And so you're really like a catalyst as a chief innovation officer. You're doing a lot of um, external relationship management. You're, you're connecting uh, potential partners and potential um, techniques to uh, stakeholders that maybe you know will have pull for them, but don't know don't know that they're there yet. You're finding people who are stuck in the mud around a change they want to make, and you're saying, "Hey, we helped X, Y, and Z department overcome these other changes. Let's help. Let's help you do that." And then, in some instances, like in the work that that you've seen publicly with um, like Care First, for example, where we're starting a where we started a, a digital health incubation program with them. In some instances, you're thinking about what are some enterprise wide things that we can do to catalyze what's possible tomorrow? What are new strategic relationships we can have with external stakeholders, whether it's the government or the major payers like Care First, that will propel the whole organization forward? Uh, so you're doing all of that, but generally speaking, you're, you're helping people think of change, you're mapping out strategies. Sometimes my staff would be implementing during those days, but we always had to have an operator along with us. Hopefully, mm -hmm. The idea was as much theirs as possible, kind of like a consulting you know, engagement in that sense. And then always handing over at the end of implementing some new innovation, always handing it over to the operating team, right? Uh, so the difference between that now is, you know, now as the leader of the CIN, you know, I'm operating these value-based contracts, right? I'm, I'm the enterprise leader that is uh, in charge of the teams that are getting that access work done, that are getting that consumer digital experience work done, that are, that are redrafting the contracts with the payers, um, that are making all this make sense to the doctors and bringing them. And so I'm never going to hand this off to anybody else, right, except for the next chief clinical officer. And I took the, the role more or less from the previous chief clinical officer, who's my current boss, uh, Matt Popperon. So that's, the, you know, to me, that's the difference is there will be innovation in this role. And, you know, uh, and I will work with members, of my, my old team to help, um, to leverage them in, in, in facilitating, so facilitating some of this change. But, you know, this sort of PNL, right, of, of the clinically integrated network as the operator, you know, that, that, that's mine, like the, the, the opportunity and the accountability for it. And that's, that's different, you know, than, than being the sort of cultural center of innovation within the organization.
I, I love how you are thinking about this as as it as a cultural role. I think that that's really important, and it shows how you'll kind of keep that thread going forward as as you're the chief clinical officer going forward. So, if I can keep kind of pulling on that thread, um, as a as you go from chief innovation officer to chief clinical officer, you must understand better than anybody else this danger of kind of shiny object syndrome in healthcare. Um, and having been on that, you know, very much, you know, shiny innovation side, how are you going to approach the decision to kind of build, buy, or partner differently uh, in this role? And as part of that, how are you going to position innovation as a strategic imperative? I mean, innovation and strategy are just these things you can bring governance models and constructs to them, but there's also just an inherently you know, blue sky sort of opportunistic nature to, to this type of work. Um, so one always has their, their five-year strategy in healthcare. I mean, an organization our size is going to have it. And there is a, a role that innovation is playing in there. But by its very nature, you know that what we'll be talking about in, in, in the third year of that five-year plan, a lot of it we don't even know about today, right? That's just <laughs> the nature of the beast. Three years ago, uh, people knew about the coronavirus, but they didn't know about COVID, right? There was, there was a coronavirus or a series of them, right? I mean, think of how much the world changes. Um, on the other hand, we knew 10 years ago about a lot of the things that became a big deal during COVID, like virtual care, right? And if you're into the biotech life sciences thing, you know about mRNA vaccines back then, right? And you knew about mm-hmm. vaccine trials and coronaviruses, but all of a sudden that became the thing to know this past year and a half. And every health system had to sort of really have a deep knowledge in that in order to just, just be able to survive. Having been involved with baking the, the enterprise-wide strategy as, and the innovations that are powering parts of the strategy, um, I have a pretty good sense, as do my aligned executives, like our, our chief physician executive or our chief information officer or our chief marketing officer. All of us are working together with, with several others um, to think through things like access, you know, online booking, uh, which is closely affiliated with the idea of a seamless digital experience. This is something, you know, we're not new at the table. We've been at this space for several years. We're sort of midway through a variety of implementations. We have a pretty good map. A lot of that has been honestly made more real during COVID because what was sort of speculative about what consumers would do over time if they had a need for virtual health or saw a value in it, um, that became very real last year. Mm. And it says, you know, between one and two percent of encounters were virtual, depending on how you count an encounter before COVID. During COVID, it was above 50 percent. Following COVID, it seems to be heading down to somewhere between 10 and 20 percent, again, depending on how you define it. And what I would expect will happen is that over time, that will gradually ratchet up as there is sort of a um, combination of generational turnover, reimbursement changes. Essentially, people will find, like anything else in healthcare, things that this works well for, and they'll find things that it doesn't work well for. Um, I feel like we're in a pretty good spot within the CIN in terms of the innovations that we need to drive in the next 12 to 24 months. But I know a lot of that could be false confidence based on the, you know, like I mentioned, some of the history of innovation. Uh, but I think a lot of it will be around um, access and consumer experience, and particularly within digital apps and other types of portals for seeking care. And then all the very complex operations that you see behind that. You know. Um, it really, and then that's where the clinically integrated network and 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 uh, the physician relationships and the trust, you know, come into play. If you are the Mayo Clinic or one of these large employed systems that has a very well defined construct for what it means to be in the brand, 
uh, and you've been building out organically on that for decades, you can take a series of very directive actions around constructing your model. And there's a lot of advantages to that. There's also some risk in doing that because you may find yourself building a narrow model when you do that because you think you know the answer. We're in the position that most community health systems are, are in. We have some employed folks, we have some that are affiliated, and we have like a spectrum in between. Um, so the, the types of tools that we offer these folks, whether it's value-based contracting tools or digital tools, and the ways that we ask them to transform their, their, their practices, you know, they're going to be different by location. And what we're trying to get done is making sure that the model of care, what we believe needs to happen for the patient based on medical evidence and what the patients tell us, you know, we need, need to make sure that it happens one way or the other anywhere within the clinically integrated network. But the tactics may, may look very different in one practice versus another, right? And that, um, that opens you up to a range of models. And, you know, so there, there's a challenging um, model to operationalize because uh, it's inherently less scalable than the one that I referenced where you have kind of one model that you're organically growing out. However, one of the hidden virtues of that model is that when unexpected things happen, you have like a series of experiments. And, you know, you have a, a model that looks and plays differently a, across um, a couple different dimensions. And so you have a more diversified portfolio in that sense. And, and so you may have traction in one party network that gives you the growth opportunity with, with that model, even if other, other slightly different models are failing at the same time. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. And you've you've brought up a couple of times already working around patient connectivity and experience. Um, and again, there's there's the matching of this patient experience and expectations versus all of these different care models that might occur at different parts of your health system. So and this is a, a problem that's not unique to LifeBridge, obviously. I mean, we've been in healthcare dealing for years with the fact that we are lagging behind in, you know, customer or patient experience, however you want to call it, versus other industries. How do you think we can provide patient connectivity and experience that matches their, and that to say the patient's expectations inside and outside of the healthcare setting? Um, you know, consumerism is not necessarily a bad word here. It's really, you know, how can we re reduce this friction involved in patient experience? Yeah. Well, I want let me talk briefly about consumerism versus, you know, consumers versus patients, you know, mm -hmm. and then I want to talk about some of the other media your question and then answer also something I didn't ask you before about partnering and, and how I think about that. So um, my perspective, which is one person's perspective, uh, and there are many on consumers versus patients, um, you know, we're, we're all, but, and it's those times in our life when we are like, we've really gotten some bad news and we find ourselves at, in a, in a way, um, not a negative way at the mercy, we'll say sort of the doctors and specialists, because they're the only ones that deal with the problem that we have to have solved, you know, life and death type problems when you're in a car accident, when you get diagnosed with breast cancer, um, when, you know, when you, um, when, when your child has an issue, those moments, we all feel like patients, right? In the sense that we're in that sort of paternalistic model of all we want is for this problem to be solved or to know how it can be solved or even to know what the future holds. And there's really like only way we can get that, which is through accessing the medical complex. And we're, we're happy to be with anybody at that instant that, that is somewhat sympathetic and feels qualified or is qualified to answer that question. It's like a deleveraged position. And that's the way almost all patient encounters were if you go back far enough, right? The consumer comes in in healthcare more like when you're looking for something and you have time for it. And it's, you know, it's kind of like when you're looking for a dinner. Hey, I want to get a good primary care appointment. I'm not going to die without it. I want the best price. I want it my way. I want the people to, 
you know, um, all be wearing, you know, collared shirts and looking really buttoned up, or I don't care about that. You know, whatever you want, you're, you, you have time to shop for it. And, um, or another way of thinking of consumerism is, you know, I'm on a bunch of medications and this is not, I'm actually personally not, but let's say somebody has a couple of chronic health conditions and they are, but not, you know, they're not in a position where any of that is going to um, disable them that day. You know, they may be much more active in today's construct than, hey, I want to get a good deal on these medications. Am I on the right ones? Can I check with another doctor to see if he put me on a, a you know, more affordable regimen? And it's this kind of business of, I think I know what I need for my health. I'm empowered by information. It could be false confidence, right? But it, it's a different power balance. And, and in that instance, you know, you're still a patient, but you're a consumer because you're sort of telling your doctor or your healthcare organization what you expect of them. It's much more bi-directional. Um, organizations that do really well with patient, patient experience, I'm convinced, they, they somehow make it very patient-centered on this. When someone's truly patient, truly, truly vulnerable, that patient still winds up with an experience that they felt like they shopped for, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that that's true. I'm not saying that shouldn't be, and that should be what we all aspire towards. However, there, the, the difference in those perspectives to me is the difference between the consumer and the patient. Inherently, um, market share shifts, right? They're less likely to be made outside of academic centers by that sort of patient mindset when, they, when they're, you know, they're kind of going to go wherever it's available. You know, the, the market share plays are going to be largely playing towards the consumer when they're making that informed decision, when they're leveraging you against other potential care points. And, you know, one of the ways to protect against that is through all life cycles, when the patient's feeling like a patient or when they're feeling consumer, to have them in a relationship that's sticky enough that they always want to choose you. Because even though they might not love, let's say, um, they, well, maybe they really, really like some other cardiologist that's at, outside your network, but you've just offered them so much value in the consistency of care and the fact that it's all packaged together a certain way that they're also going to stay you, with you for the cardiologist, right? And that is, you know, even though they might not really know them, right? That is, um, that's where you start, you know, we're, we're providing the right kind of experience can sort of win these, um, these uh, consumers over. And without that growth in market share or that growth in, um, spending or better value performance without any of that, like nothing's going to perpetually fund that. So some people always wonder like, Dan, why are you bringing the business into this? This, this is sort of the sacred doctor health system patient relationship. Yes. However, if, if we don't think about a way that shows strategically that it supports itself, you know, then as a nonprofit with, with wages rising in healthcare and, and people wanting healthcare for less money, like how you're never going to be able to pay for it. So you have to have sort of an internal thesis on why this works. Now, to answer to the other part of um, the question I said I'd get to, um, other sectors do this better. It, they may have less complexity. They may not, you know, um, but, but certainly thinking of people as consumers is just in the verbiage I've already given, very different than thinking of them as patients historically. So we are culturally, you know, decades in a way behind. One of the ways we've tried to approach that is we brought in a chief marketing officer from outside of healthcare, from finance. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, he, he wasn't a CFO; he was a chief marketing officer for a major bank. Right? Mm -hmm. and banks are great with getting transactions. They have a lot of the you know, people really want to keep their healthcare information uh, you know, secret. They also want to keep their banking information secret. So um, he's a great guy. His name is Brian Defa. You know, and he's an emblematic of what we tried to do and things like patient experience, uh, a big part of which relies upon uh, marketing and outreach. We recently brought on a chief digital officer who um, it, it was had had some previous health experience, but 
um, healthcare experience, but was also largely from like the education sector. And uh, so we're trying to get the talent that is um, not necessarily produced the content themselves, but talent that's seen how you build these types of pathways and experiences for people and customers or consumers. And then they bring in a lot, you know, wealth of information on how to uh, have, which partners you want to have on the digital side. Because the truth is that health systems, again, outside the major academic centers, are not going to be able to um, recruit and retain like developer level talent for digital tools. Like that is, that's, that's a fantasy. And frankly, it's a fantasy for the big health systems, they're, they're, you know, which is why all of them eventually wound up on Epic, right? Even though they all built their own thing in the 90s and 80s, they all wound up on Epic in the 2000s. I expect the same thing will happen on most of the AI, you know, online scheduling. Like, you know, this is not, this is stuff that will always have to be kept current with different devices and with the latest program te uh, programming techniques and security regulations. And I just don't see like the innovation shop at like, let's say May or the Brigham or whatever it is, um, being able to compete long-term in these areas. So, uh, and certainly not in LifeBridge. So we're very open to partnering in these areas that I've referenced around um, providing a seamless digital experience and uh, with, with an eye towards, you know, aligned vendors that are gonna deliver on the types of metrics that, that we're, we're long-term thinking of. So rather than just sort of providing appointments to get booked, we really want, you know, to show that they're, um, want the vendor to be developing analytics along with us, for example, to make sure yeah. that, you know, here's, here's how we're managing our capacity. Here's how uh, we are ensuring that these physicians get full book booking. And we look all the way across the thread. We don't just look at, okay, we've, we've, we've got online booking now, we're doing it. We look at how many patients saw the ad, how many people clicked through, how far did each um, potential consumer get in the booking process for those who booked, how many showed up, for those who showed up, you know, what was, what were the collections on them, you know, mm -hmm. and then all the way through to like the, the doctors that are doing this and really opening their schedules, what do their productivity metrics look like versus doctors that aren't, you know, the whole, the whole funnel we call it. Um, and you have to have a partner that's like, you know, they can't just be dropping in and providing a service. They need, they need to understand why you want it and then be building, you know, a whole suite of analytics uh, and faring information back and forth to build out the solution. That's so a responsive partnership with your technology partners. Is. Exactly. Based on that conversation, you know, I wanted to kind of circle back to something that came up at the very beginning of our conversation, which is value-based care. Um, you came on LifeBridge uh, in a position within the ACO. LifeBridge has considerable interest in value-based uh, contracts. So how does your experience accountable care for career, especially in LifeBridge, influence how you approach innovation? So how, how can it change your organizational approach to innovation and technology purchasing? Because your incentives are definitely going to be different. And as we're just talking about metrics and analytics, um, what you're going to be looking for in those interactions is going to be in different in some ways as well. So I'm, I'm really interested hearing you on that. Yeah, I mean, um, so the it really frames the whole strategy. I mentioned before how pretty much everything we do, I want to know, I want a financial justification for it so that I know that it will be perpetuated and and sticky and and sustainable. Value-based care is really well known for um, reimbursing not just for people going through the turnstiles as patients, but for producing outcomes. I mean, mm -hmm. and we can all sit here and argue about the best way to measure that, but that is sort of the principle of value-based care. Um, 
So, what I'm, you know, what I'm currently in the process of doing is we're looking across all our value-based contracts. We're trying to assign new ones. We're trying to align them as much as possible. And the idea is you can you can build out business cases for things that you would like to be able to do for patients, but under for which there's not a great traditional fee-for-service business case. You know, and Maryland's a great place to do that because even our hospitals are capitated. So if you look at the premium dollar Maryland within Maryland, let's say 40% of the premium dollars going towards hospitalizations, well, you know, within attributed populations, that's all capitated. So we're very aligned, you know, in the network. We're very aligned with, with the hospital presidents and CFOs to do, to spend extra money, provide better care, keep people out of the hospital, right? Um, and one of the ways you do that is true to form with where a lot of my mind clearly is right now is you get people in, you get them engaged on a digital platform, you get them access tools, and then they don't feel like they have to go to the ER, you know, every other week if they're a high utilizer, for example. So you engage them in ways that it is quick for you to access healthcare. Um, and access has always been for many years, you know, um, my time with Evelyn, you know, where I was mostly focusing on value-based care uh, along with my time at Hopkins. And prior to that at McKinsey, I was more focused on fee-for-service. But um, the, the Venn diagram, the biggest area of the Venn diagram, the most important overlap, I think, is access. Because access drives both your fee-for-service business cases through volume, as well as your um, the strategic aspects of getting access at the right place at the right time. That drives your value-based care contracts because it reduces the total cost of care. And the art of doing both well really is to figure out how to you know, bring on more and more lives and give them better and better access strategically, right? Not just access to your high, high um, you know, not just access to back surgeries, which is kind of what US hospitals, you know, <laughs> you know as, as a group have done versus other parts of the world, but access to like hospital at home, access to outpatient dialysis treatment or home dialysis treatment, access to things that um, are timely and appropriate and extremely efficient. And you know you can carry more lives on your chassis if you're doing a more efficient job of providing high high quality outcomes for that group of lives. Um, and so access reigns supreme in my my view, and it's one of the really the, the big things I'm focusing on in this next in this first year as uh, chief clinical officer. And then a lot of other sub initiatives um, aimed at, across the the metrics of the value based contract. That's that's really it's a great answer, and um, I think there's often some thoughts out some misconceptions around value-based care that it is that that it you know you either have to choose to be fee for service and innovate with new technologies or value-based care um, and not necessarily be as much profit focused and I'd love to hear if there's a way that value-based care in your experience can help drive um, drive innovation and you just mentioned you know the more efficient I can be the better I can be at these these contracts so is that your motivation behind kind of it in integrating innovation uh, on these value-based contracts? Yeah, I mean, that was frankly like a big reason that I took the chief innovation officer role three years ago. It was really clear in the early value-based contracts that we were doing that a lot of um, what we needed to, to excel at was uh, tech-enabled, you know, and it was also very new and, and powered by startups a lot of the time. So things like risk stratification algorithms for the, for the population using AI or other, other types of... Um, you know, advanced statistical methods and, and pooling together data from lots of different sources into enterprise warehouses. Like, this is all pretty new stuff. And it is also much of it applicable to fee-for-service, but it sort of came out of a lot of uh, companies and startups like Avalon, where I was before, that uh, were trying to solve for the value uh, 
you know, equation back in the early part of the last of the last decade. I think it's all coming together now. Like, it, it, within LifeBridge, to me, it feels like more than half of our revenue is sort of tied to the efficiency proposition, whether it's explicitly at risk in a two-sided, you know, corridor, or whether it's just simply kind of capitated, um, and you know, uh, and then a bunch of other additional one-sided risk contracts. There's there's a lot at stake, whether it's whether it's going to be clawed back or whether it's you know, um, uh, kind of a bonus at the end of the year. It, that's sort of semantics. There's a lot at stake for reducing total cost of care while maintaining or improving quality. Particularly, uh, these patient experience metrics we all know are looming larger and larger over time. They're getting more and more weight and you know, mm. things like that over time, right? These are really, really important. Um, and also really, really challenging in urban cores of the type that we serve because traditionally, um, you know, urban locales just, they score lower on, on patient experience. So we, you know, we have our work cut out for us and it's, it's gonna be a challenge. I feel like, um, I think we know a lot of what we need to execute on and, you know, we have a great team assembled ready to do it. Well, that's a great way to end. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Um, I'm really excited to see uh, what kind of amazing value-based clinical innovation comes out of LifeBridge in the next year or so. I think it's going to be really great. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Emily. Take care. Thank Always you. a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this week's Health Impacts Digital Health Talk. Don't miss another podcast. Subscribe at digitalhealthtalks.com. And to join us at our next face-to-face event, visit healthimpactlive.com.